I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Never Will I Ever Beef with Chrissy Teigen edition. It's Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. On today's show, Never Have I Ever is a Netflix sitcom substantially created, produced, and written by Mindy Kaling. It's about a first-generation Indian-American girl coming of age in Sherman Oaks, California. And then Alice and Roman versus, really, the world at this point. It started out as her versus Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo. It expanded from there into a maelstrom. We also throw onto that some Lana Del Rey versus the pop world. What we're really talking about in that segment is Twitter beefs in an age of pandemic. And finally, I chose this week's comfort movie so it does not feature a psychopath. Um, It features uh, the dreamy Jennifer Lopez and uh, George Clooney being dreamy together. It's Steven Soderbergh's 1998 caper, Out of Sight. Joining me is Julia Turner from Los Angeles. She, of course, is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Julia Turner, hey, how's it going? Hello, nice to be with you. And uh, Dana Stevens, of course, is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hi, how are y'all doing? How are you holding up? I'm poised between the abject terror of infection of the early portion of the pandemic with some hopeful summer loosening of the rules that are nonetheless Cuomo friendly. That's exactly where I'm at right hmm. now. Ugh, but the loosening of the rules is like utterly without logic. I'm so freaked out by the loosening of the rules. Right. I Definitely on a mass and social scale, they're, they're incoherent and they're going to produce, unfortunately, consequences that we can't really even discuss glibly what some of those consequences are going to be. I think very responsible people are capable of perhaps conforming their behavior to the change in weather and mood with really like the kinds of risks that you already take when you get into a bathtub or an automobile. But I I do not in any way mean to be glib or encourage anyone to do anything other than what they're doing. No, I mean, it's like the fundamental question, like the, the, there's also the risk of the economy continuing to stall and all the economic devastation. I mean, it, it is true. Like, my behavior is different than it was 10 weeks ago. I took the kids to the beach this weekend. We we know we figured out a place to park that where the beach is pretty empty. And it felt very safe to be there. And I never would have done that in March. So I, I, even as I exclaim, I am also changing my behavior. It just feels like we're all at the top of a slide and we don't know what's going to happen when we get to the bottom. Yeah. And I mean, without getting into something that will turn us into the political cab fest, just the fact that there's no leadership from the top, that there's absolutely no sense of kind of coherence of of a plan for the country is it's just it causes you despair no matter what your own personal situation is. It causes me to stare listlessly into space for many hours a day. Right. And like devoted self-hating Protestant that I am, there are instances where the like workings of my own private conscience aren't a substitute for leadership and, you know, strategic machinations of the state. But now we're the political philosophical gab fest, so maybe we should move on to Mindy Kaling. What do we think? I think so. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. 
Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Mindy Kaling, is she the busiest woman in show business? The Office, The Mindy Project, Four Weddings and a Funeral. She's appeared in a lot of things that we've watched over the years. Her new show is basically, as I understand it, an autobiographical one. It's based on her story, but it takes place in 2020, roughly. Never Have I Ever follows the sophomore year in high school of an Indian-American girl named Devi Vishwakumar. Her beloved father recently has died of a heart attack, which has brought upon her a, uh, we're led to believe, psychosomatic attack of leg paralysis. Her mother is very loving, very brilliant woman, but she's overprotective and a little bit of a tiger mother, we're led to believe by the show's own logic. And her cousin now lives with them. She's older, beautiful, and quite brilliant and being forced into an arranged marriage, all of which is to say that her household is safe and loving, but the source of some frustrations. And she's become fixated on losing her virginity to the school's heartthrob. Meanwhile, I am still puzzling out why, but it has a strange logic to it. The show is narrated by the retired tennis star John McEnroe. The show stars Maitre Ramakrishnan as Devi and Porna Jagannathan as her mother. Let's listen to a clip. Whoa, Devi, you look like an Indian Kardashian. Thanks, Fab, but I thought we are dressing hot today. This is my boy's medium polo instead of my usual large. The janitor said no, just no. Well, Stop. I know I did a good job. Get a load of sexy flapper girl. My grandmother died in this dress. Okay, let's just stick to the plan. What's our goal for today? To make conversation. conversation. Right, we're talking to the boys. I'm gonna ask Jonah to come over and watch unreleased Ariana Grande footage. Before you know it, we'll all be boinking at prom. Okay. Boyfriend, here I come. Dana, let me start with you. In some respects, the show is a you know, fairly standard issue, cracking the Da Vinci Code of sophomore year of high school uh, drama, comedy, dramedy, crossed with uh, the highly original first-generation American elements. What do you make of it? It is tons of fun. It's very sweet. It's very uh, energetic. It moves quickly, which, as you guys know, is my number one (laughs) criterion for will I continue to watch, especially Netflix comedies or not. And I plan to watch the whole thing. I'm now halfway through the 10-episode season, and presumably there could be more, because there could be more to, to come in Devi's story. And uh, I'm, I'm really loving it, and I'm, I'm advising my about-to-be high school freshman daughter to, to watch it, too. Steve, I don't know if you had either of your kids watch it. Um, I'm watching it alone for the moment, but I really think she would enjoy it, and she has a high standard for such things. Mainly, in fact, she wants them not to resemble a show that this show makes fun of, which is Riverdale. There's a moment that um, a couple of the characters are, are watching Watching Riverdale and uh, both entranced by and poking fun at the way high schoolers are played by 28 year olds, right? According to kind of age old Greece style tradition. Um, and this show doesn't feel like that. The, the high schoolers, at least the main character who's wonderful, seems like an actual adolescent. And that really adds a lot to her story. But I just think across the board, the casting is great. I don't know about you guys, but for example, small things like the rivalry that the main character has with this, <laughs> this other grade grubber at school. And uh, there's sort of, you know, just fierce enmity with each other, especially in this episode midway through where they go to a model UN convention and they each play a different country at the convention. It's just some really good high school nerd humor and excellent casting in in all the roles. Uh, It's just so charmingly done, including, Steve, I love the John McEnroe narration. I love the weirdness of it, that it's never explained why a real life 
tennis star in his 60s is 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 narrating but there's something so self-deprecating and funny about his narration and the way that he connects his own tendency to lose his temper right his famous uh, habit of screaming at umpires and you know being angry throughout tennis games with the short temper that the main character has it's this crazy disconnect and i'm not exactly sure how he's going to enter into the story but uh but i always look forward to the john McEnroe narration segments i mean just to step back this show is wonderful Really wonderful. I watched the whole thing. And Dana, if you liked episodes one through five and you liked the rivalry between um, Davy's character and Ben, her her nemesis, uh, you will really enjoy episode six, which takes a toggle over to Ben's point of view um, with, with an alternate grown-up famous narrator who I won't spoil. Oh, uh, great. And I think the show only gets deeper and richer it goes for, as it goes forward because it wrestles with the with Davy's underlying problem, which is grief, right? I mean, the, the teen rom-com is a venerable format, and this has many of its pleasures. I love the characterization, for example, of her friends. The, <laughs> I particularly love her theater friend, thinking that her flapper get-up was a hot hottie outfit for their <laughs> boyfriend conquest attempts. Um, and the show just wears lightly, like, of course, the three female heroes are three girls of different ethnicities, not white, in the San Fernando Valley. Um so it it everything it's doing with the rom-com is great, but I actually think where the show excels is in being about grief and the way that um, Davy's relationship with her mother is sketched and the tensions that um, are personal to them that have to do with the the kind of cultural relationship to achievement and misbehavior and being in America that is drawn in this family and the different ways in which they're processing the loss of Davy's father becomes more and more central as it goes along and is handled with incredible grace. And I will cop to it. I wept. I wept at the finale um, and just thought of um, families I know that, that lost a parent early on for their kids. And I thought it was just a really extraordinary and great portrayal of grief. And it the, the McEnroe... I really loved because I think it helped me put my finger on something that doesn't always work for me about Mindy Kaling's work, uh, but that really works for me here. There's a certain kind of like glib brashness to her protagonists. And I, I watched many seasons of The Mindy Project. I did not watch it all the way to its end on Hulu. Um, but I didn't quite find her character real. I felt like her dalliances with men were sort of everybody was a new pop-up cardboard guy every week. It it there was this kind of emotional unreality to the to that show that made it a little bit hard to love and kind of took away from the thing that Mindy Kaling has always very publicly spoken about loving, which is the conventions of the rom-com format. But um the John McEnroe kind of solves the emotional puzzle of the Mindy Kaling protagonist to me because it it use this male archetype of someone who is kind of brash and dumb and like doesn't want to get underneath their own feelings because there's pain there as a way to explain why the protagonist's behavior is like a little bit alien and it's sort of this male archetype for how to understand a person like oh yeah they're just angry so they lash out and do dumb shit and we sort of accept that in men in a way that we don't in women and so for it to be doing this like really kind of radical gender thing on top of its ethnicity stuff on top of being a really 
beautiful story about grief. I was just blown away. I thought it was so great. This is my favorite thing we've watched in a long time. Oh, that's wonderful. That makes me really, really excited to watch it till the end. Maybe I will recruit my daughter and force her to start it with me so we can we can yeah. cry together at the end. I will definitely now watch it till the end, but I was very on the fence. But Julia, you really unlocked a couple of its secrets for me. I mean, I had friends from abroad come and visit. And you, do you know one of the things they most wanted to see? You know, they didn't want to see the Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty. What they wanted to do is go to a public high school and look at the lockers. I mean, the, the degree to which we've exported this extraordinary institution, the American public high school, via our fiction making and filmmaking, TV making prowesses to the rest of the world, it's imprinted so deeply on the consciousness of young people and others all over the world that this archetypal experience happens in front of these rows of lockers for which I suppose in other cultures there isn't really an exact equivalent because people I like I just want to see like I want to go see a row of lockers and I so I love this genre the power of this like <laughs> the generative powers of this genre right it's like both able to produce the new infinitely at the same time its constraints are the point right it's like a sonnet or a sudoku or whatever it's the fact that it's a heavily constrained genre you have a bunch of expectations and you really want them satisfied i agree with you that this this is humanized in ways that are incredibly touching for example there's a set piece involving the moped that is beautifully set up it's delivered upon with real grace um and it's that was quite moving there were things about this show that i didn't love and i thought they were that they were going to get in my way of continuing with it though you've talked me out of it and Dana, you asked me about my 14-year-old daughter who watched it. And I was like, what do you, I can't make up what I, I can't make up my mind about this. And she expressed something in a text to me that I think was so wise. I hope I'll be forgiven for reading it. But she said, you know, she liked it. She found it entertaining and funny. She thought the top plot was a tiny bit cliche. I'm essentially reading from her text. She said, it was very diverse, which was really, really nice. But sometimes I felt like it was like forced diversity and they were only putting in plot lines to be progressive, which IDK if that's bad or nah. But at the end of the day, all of the representation was good. And it's sort of, I was on that fence too. It's like the white male is not the default human in this show. It, he, you know, the, the white male as a social type is barely present. When he, when he is present, he occupies an identity box the way everyone else in the world occupies an identity box. I think that is a huge advance for human civilization. I mean, I actually think the way that the plot lines are constructed is really conscious. And there is only one white male character I can think of in the show. Actually, I guess maybe there's like a doofy neighbor who tries to buy the Vespa at one point. But, you know, uh, Ben, the nemesis, is a white boy and Jewish. But like the popular kids are all multi-ethnic. The nerds are all multi-ethnic. The hottie is multi-ethnic. The, you know, the just the the texture of it takes very lightly that these are all a, a wide array of interesting stories, the point of which is not their ethnicity. Um, and, you know, for so many years, what we have done as a culture is spectate white male ambition and anger, as represented by John McEnroe, and having John McEnroe deem it worthy to spectate everybody else is part of what's just so sly and lovely about the way the show puts our... Um, historical cultural obsessions on their head. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And just a quick, quick note. Sorry, there is a second white male character whose white maleness is is pointed up quite a lot, which is the college counselor, who just totally oh, stereo. Right. He ter- totally stereotypes Davy. He's meant to be kind of regarded as a sack of shit. Uh, that's funny. I mean, that's quite well done. And Stephen responds maybe to your daughter's text. I don't know if she listens, but I feel like there's one character that very deftly and with a very light touch kind of spoofs the idea very earnestly, having to to represent every every possible category of diversity, which is the English teacher, or I guess he's an English teacher, the sort of history <laughs> language arts teacher. Yeah. Hilarious, wonderful performance yes. by this actor who, you know, is so sincere in his in his desire to not be a white man, right? And to to represent yeah. every conceivable category. Category that the students themselves are constantly rolling their eyes at him and he's just this kind of I mean he seems like a great teacher in a way but he is also this just incredibly self-conscious sort of touchy-feely um, representer of, of, of every point of view um, he, yeah, I, so he, I think that the show the show really sidesteps that super earnest yes. and sincere way of showcasing yeah. diversity I, I totally agree and one just one funny thing is just like just to talk you know I'm gonna belabor it a little bit but one very funny thing about that teacher is that he both wants the moral authority of the immense tragedies of history and he wants to really get eye level with the kids and relate to them and he can't so he has this incredibly nonsensical and irritating halfway point that he's settled on or 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 he just goes back spasmodically between those two and that is very 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 smart sitcom writing okay well the show is never have i ever i guess at the end of the day all three of us loved it i got um uh, gratefully talked into it by my co-hosts. It's on Netflix. Check it out and talk to us about it after you have. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, I'm sure we have some business to discuss. Uh, Dana, what's uh, what's up? Well, let's see. First of all, in Slate Plus today, we're going to have some torture. <laughs> Julia is going to force Steve <laughs> and I to do a Sudoku puzzle together online. We're not sure how that's going to work, but that is all revolving around a wonderful video that Julia tweeted about and linked to and that we'll talk about as well, in which you see a Sudoku master in Surrey, England, solving an apparently impossible Sudoku puzzle as he narrates himself doing it. And uh, we all agree that that was a fascinating video. I'm not sure if it will be fascinating to hear our feeble minds stabbing at a much easier Sudoku puzzle, but that is our plan for Slate Plus. And of course, as always, if you want to hear those extra segments and get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the magazine's membership program. As we've mentioned in our last few episodes, the current pandemic crisis has caused a lot of big budget problems at Slate and other media outlets, and that is why the Culture Gab Fest has had to go temporarily, we hope, to a biweekly schedule instead of the weekly one we maintained for so many years. So your membership is extra important for us right now. So please, if you want to support Slate and all the great journalism that we do, you can sign up for a Slate Plus membership at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Please consider joining if you haven't. And I will say, if you if this show has is a habit in your life, if you listen to us regularly, um, and if for some reason you haven't joined Slate Plus until now, we'd be really grateful if you would join now. The, the journalism in general is in need of 
reader and listener support, direct support. You know, you pay for your cable, you pay for your cell phone, you know, you pay for Netflix. And yet I think there still can be a bit of a habit of feeling like, why should I pay for the news that I value? And you should. It's not free. And the business model that used to make it free, advertising is gone. Those ad dollars are going to Facebook and Google. They're not coming to journalists anymore in any substantial amount. So if you want journalism to thrive, you should pay for it. And we hope that Slate is one of the things you'll consider paying for. So that's slate.com slash culture plus. Other than that, Julia, do you have some other bits of business to go over? couple bits of business. One is just to remind folks that we are all reading The Great Influenza by John Barry about the influenza pandemic of 1918. It's a big, really interesting, meaty, popular history. We'll be discussing that on the show uh, by the time we all finish it. It's like a 500-page tome. Um, second is to announce that, yes, as some of you have asked, we are doing Summer Strut this year. Our annual tradition of having you guys submit the most struttable songs you've encountered in the last 12 months then listening to them, then discussing them with a great friend of the podcast, Chris Melanfi, is still our intention. What does strutting mean in a pandemic? In some ways, some of us are taking more walks because it's the only activity that we have. So that's some strutting opportunities. On the other hand, mentally and psychically, we're all in a slightly less swaggery, strutty place because all of human civilization has been humbled by... um, a virus. So it might have some interesting sounds this year, but submit your strut offerings um, and or music that has been resonating for you to culturefest at slate.com. Uh, put your links there or you can tweet them to at slate cult fest with the hashtag summer strut and our production assistant will compile them all into a gigantic Spotify playlist, which we will sift through and bring you the best of later this summer. So don't forget to read The Great Influenza, um, and don't forget to submit your suggestions for Summer Strut. All right, back to the show. Alison Roman, she was one of the signature personalities of the Bon Appetit Empire for a while. She moved on to BuzzFeed and the New York Times. She's a pastry chef and cookbook author. She's famous for her definite article recipes, also the cookies, the pasta, the stew that everyone suddenly made. Uh, She's been dubbed the prom queen of the pandemic as everyone tries to outdo everyone else by showing off how sumptuously they've hunkered down. I guess they're making some of these recipes. Then Alison Roman gave the interview, I think it's fair to call it that now. She went on a profanity-laced takedown of Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo. Let me just read some quotes from that. Like the idea that when Marie Kondo decided to capitalize on her fame and make stuff that you can buy, that is completely antithetical to everything she's ever taught you. Someone's like, you should make stuff. And she's like, okay, slap my name on it. I don't give a shit. And uh, then she went on and you know, <laughs> through some heavy shade at Chrissy Teigen as well. Julia, this, this of course, especially in the time of pandemic, just absolutely blew up Twitter. Chrissy Teigen was graceful in her response, as I understand it, uh, and um, the backlash forced Allison Roman into a huge apology. We will get to Lana Del Rey, who's done something vaguely similar, but what did you make of this, uh, this Twitter beef, as it were? Well, I mean, the thing that I think is interesting to discuss is like, Okay, so we've reached the phase of the pandemic where the squabbles of people more famous than us have suddenly become galvanizing subjects of inquiry and debate in a way that they did not seem to be for the first, I don't know, six weeks or so. And so I, you know, the particulars of the fight 
we can we can go through. But I was just more interested in the reaction. Like people were so excited to read about this. I think just the drama of someone who had become uh, kind of a darling, a general social media darling for the last couple of years, and then in particular the darling of the pandemic with her shallot pasta, which, by the way, it is a really good recipe. And uh, whatever you think <laughs> of the debate, would recommend that you make it. Um, and it just felt a little bit like the old outrage internet where a fairly small subset of the culture likes to watch people tear each other apart had resumed. And it was like a weird kind of green shoot of normalcy resuming, but kind of a poisonous green shoot, like a foxglove green shoot of just like, oh, human nature. It's not all self-sacrifice and like trying to bend the curve and protect the nurses. It's just watching people's base arguments and and the return of schadenfreude and internet crusading and all the rest of it. I don't know. I, I found the whole thing to be weirdly heartening and depressing at the same time. Yeah, I guess I guess maybe what struck me most about all this, I, unlike Julia, I didn't feel terribly heartened by it. It made me seriously consider getting completely off Twitter, Steve, as you have done, so that I just don't have to think about things like what Alison Roman thinks of Chrissy Teigen. But yeah, I mean, it really does on, honestly read like a frank conversation that one would have when not being recorded by an interviewer who's about to um, publish the interview. So there's something unvarnished about it that makes it fun and rollicking to read, but also that seems sort of shockingly uncharitable, particularly to Tegan, given that t- the two of them have this professional relationship, right? I think Chrissy Teigen is one of the executive producers on this cooking show that Alison Roman is about to do, which she is in part promoting in this interview. So there was a little bit of a sense of just going off the rails and n- not saying this should be off the record in time to uh, to protect oneself from the backlash. I actually think the smartest stuff to come out of this, um, you know, there w- really was a great essay in Eater about the, the way in which um, foods from different cultures kind of go viral and who makes them viral and the, the whiteness of the food world that I think is a really interesting and big takeaway from all of this. And that Alison Roman's um, just thoughtlessness, like just not noticing that the people she happened to be dragging were successful women of color. And the, the privilege of that thoughtlessness was just part of what made this so electrifying, I think. All right. Well, there was this other Twitter beef that got brewing between Lana Del Rey and basically the world of female pop diva dumb uh in which she called out by name a you know bunch of people Do- doja cat ariana uh beyonce cardi b saying you know you've had these number one songs about being sexy in her words now being sexy wearing no clothes fucking cheating etc can i go back to singing about being embodied feeling beautiful being in love uh etc etc without being crucified or saying that i'm glamorizing abuse Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. Uh, I love that you put in all the excessive Lana punctuation. But but Julia, just explain to me what this all means and why it's important or not. I mean, it's very hard to untangle. Like you could try to diagram all the sentences and her various statements on this. And I, I am not certain what you would come up with in terms of intended meaning. But I think what I gathered is that she feels that her work does not always get respect because she's been accused of glamorizing violence against women or women in relationships with bad men or positions of 
subservience or something. I'm already saying more than she quite said. And that she doesn't understand why she gets criticized when these other women, again, all women who are women of color and very famous and successful, who she didn't seem to notice, she was lumping all together against her own experience. Um, is that what she was saying? I, I have no sympathy for what she was trying to say. You know, with with Alison Roman, I have some understanding of, okay, your career is skyrocketing and you gave an interview that was too candid and you haven't learned how to control your own image and you were kind of heedless about your targets and then you seem to learn something from it. Like, that's a tidier narrative than you were just quietly going along making music that's valorized, um, and but instead you seem to have perceived yourself as being injured in some fashion that is not explained to any of us. I mean, she just commits a complete unforced error here, right? I mean, she's not being asked a question and answering it wrong. She just, her post, her initial post began, question for the culture, which already is a (laughs) siren right there. (laughs) And and it just, it really does seem like she's on a big self-pitying trip, even though as far as I can tell, her last album was incredibly well-received. And, you know, of course, some of her apologies also contain just a classic, classic sort of, I mean, it could be satirized on a teen show, like Never Have I Ever that we were just talking about. But, you know, just those those moments of humble brags, like, people say I'm glamorizing abuse, but I'm just a glamorous person expressing my point of view. <laughs> she calls herself that at one point. I, there's something about her that's just... Um, so glorifying in her own posture as a fragile and vulnerable woman that I can easily see how the word white can be stuck in there even if she didn't put it there herself, right? And uh, as it seems like a lot of the backlash has pointed out, these issues that she thinks that she's somehow liberated women to sing sing or think or feel about are things that have been sung about by women of color, a.k.a. the blues, right, for, for decades and decades. <laughs> What I find interesting is that social media for famous people takes place in this liminal space between being a brand and being an actual human being. And the rest of us are forced to try to understand in what sense is this person being outspoken and what sense are they being spoken for? Was this actually written by them? Is it spontaneous? Is it calculated? And it's partially that mental epistemal, I mean, which which Trump, of course, brings to absolutely heightened state like did Stephen Miller write that did he write it did Trump write it because he's a totally unfiltered moron or is it targeted at my psyche in order to lock up my brain and render render me politically inert or docile and I prefer not to right I'm Bartleby now like that's where I've gotten to I can only cope with all of this I, I can't sift through it all and figure out what is signal and what is noise and so I'm I have just decided I prefer not to. I just can't figure out whose right to speech is stepping on someone else's historical lack of privilege. And I can't solve the authenticity conundrum by thumbing through Twitter. And so I I just want to become a Mennonite now. I mean, I'm just, I I hate to be that person. I know because it's so central to our culture. But nobody is saying that they shouldn't speak. I think people are just saying, I mean, maybe people are saying that, I don't know. But I think like Lana has every right to be an idiot and she's, but she just sounds dumb. (laughs) (laughs) I would also say that both of these instances, the Alison Roman dust up and and this Lana Del Rey one seem utterly authentic to me. I don't think there's any Stephen Millers behind the scenes pulling the strings because they wouldn't say such dumb, unfiltered things. No, no, no. I, I, no, I say Dana, I completely agree with that, right? That there's no calculation in either one of those in a way. But I guess that's what I'm saying is that I 
I love the idea that someone would say something out of bounds without any calculation that might actually be damaging to their fucking brand. And you want that courage at the same time. Of course you want people who are unconscious of their immense privilege not to use it to belittle or silence you know anyone who doesn't have all of human history behind their right to speak so i guess i'm just overwhelmed by it and can only express my 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 brain lock i mean okay i'm gonna speak up on behalf of um twitter battles and white woman saying thoughtless things and and getting shit for it which is to the degree that there's kind of like a enforcement mechanism happening when someone steps out of bounds and does something that they can only, you know, makes a mistake that they can only make because of the particular privilege they have, whatever it is, and then they get shouted down for it. I actually think you can learn a lot from it if you pay attention to it. Like, it's really useful to hear sometimes from people who are noticing aspects and subtexts of, um, of, of how things are coming across that are different from what you might have learned in your own position. And of course, it's become a recursive loop because so many journalists are on Twitter and it affects what is getting published and that is broadening out the world. And, you know, even in a world where you're not on Twitter, you are probably reading and consuming media that is affected by these conversations. But um, I, I think even as exhausting as every individual Twitter beef is, this sense of like, hey, guys, there are more and less enlightened ways to think about structural inequality in our society and if you, as your, as a famous person of whatever ilk, a like smart, scrappy, overexposed recipe developer, a like sulking, injured posture of a victim, chanteuse, like whatever your jam is, if you fuck up and get shouted at, like maybe we can all learn something mm. from it. And thus, I end our segment coming down largely in favor of Twitter beefs. And uh, we'll further declare that their resurrection is a sign of the healing of society. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Let us all venture forth and make oblivious statements upon our social media. <laughs> Only thus can society heal. <laughs> yes, by the thudding sounds of the punching bag. I like it. Um, all right. Well, we talk Twitter beefs. Beef with us on Twitter and elsewhere. If it's on Twitter, I won't see it. So you can email us or whatever. But uh, I learned a lot from this uh, trialogue. So anyway, let's uh, let's move on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, well, it was my turn to pick the comfort movie, and uh, I chose Out of Sight, which is a 1998 screwball thriller directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's adapted from an Elmore Leonard novel of the same name, and it hadn't really occurred to me until prepping this segment that it's kind of part of an unofficial trilogy of Leonard adaptations that all came out in the 90s, Get Shorty and Jackie Brown being the other two, each with a different director, Jack Foley is a career bank robber with a twist. He abjures the use of firearms, relying instead on his wit and charm to exit the premises with a stack of cash. He has a habit, however, of ending up behind bars, and after a half-botched escape from prison, he ends up stuffed into the trunk of a getaway car with Karen Sisko, a federal marshal played by Jennifer 
Lopez, and I should say Foley, is played by George Clooney. The two have been forced to meet cute under the tightest possible constraints, literal and figurative. They sigh and murmur into one another's ears, trading softened barbs and talking movies. It's a great little scene setting up the great question of the movie is, how badly has she fallen for him? She's a tough career law enforcement officer uh, who is routinely condescended to by her male colleagues. She'd like nothing better than the big collar, but... He's George Clooney. Come on, will she do her duty and bring him to justice or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds a little corny, but everything is it's just shot through with Elmore Leonard's astonishing dialogue and plot dexterities and just incredible wit. Anyway, the movie features a knockout ensemble cast. You've got Clooney and J-Lo in the leads, but they're supported by, get ready, Ving Rhames, Don Cheadle, Steve Zahn, Dennis Farina, Luis Guzman, Michael Keaton, Catherine Keener, and Albert Brooks all of whom play meaningful roles in the movie, all of whom brought what seems to me to be their A-game to what were, in just in terms of number of lines, relatively small parts, some of them bigger than others. Anyway, it's a great movie. Let's listen to a clip. So what's your name? Be in the paper tomorrow anyway. Jack Foley. Probably heard of me. Why are you famous? The time I was convicted in California, the FBI told me that I robbed more banks than anybody in the computer. How many was that? Tell you the truth, I don't really know. Started when I was 18 years old. Driving for my Uncle Cully and his partner, Gus. So basically, you're saying you spent half your life in prison? Basically, yeah. I go back, I do 30 years, no time off. Can you imagine looking at that? I don't have to. I don't rob banks. Yeah, you don't seem all that scared. Of course I am. You don't act like it. What do you want me to do, scream? Wouldn't help much anyway. No, I'm just gonna sit here, take it easy, and wait for you to screw up. Dana, of course I have to start with you. Uh, did, did you see this back in 98, and uh, had you seen it since, and what was it like to re-experience it now? Yeah, I definitely saw it back in 98. Um, loved it then, still love it. I wouldn't say that it, unlike you, is one of my kind of movies that I return to and return to over and over again. I can see exactly why it would fulfill that that spot. I think that how it struck me at the time, I remember, and I think this is sort of what it marks in Soderbergh's career, which has been so diverse, right? He's He kind of prides himself on making every kind of movie and TV show and skipping from genre to genre with dexterity. And to me, it was sort of, you know, Steven Soderbergh hits the mainstream, right? He makes a movie that isn't vaguely arty as Sex, Lies, and Videotape seemed at the time. And it isn't, you know, a serious coming-of-age movie like King of the Hill was. You know, that he suddenly, he was making a kind of a little pop gem that um, that people actually flocked to see, not because of who the director was, but because who, of who the stars were. And it really does have a throwback kind of feeling. I think, to me, a throwback to 70s kind of romances. I mean, among the, the conversation topics in that famous trunk scene when they're locked up together are all these movies, these 60s and 70s kind of paranoid thrillers. They talk about Bonnie and Clyde and they talk about network, right? And they talk about the parallax view. These are among their their trunk um, flirtation topics. And the movie consciously borrows from the feeling of that period. There are these things like freeze frames, right, that were definitely not being done a lot in the, the late 90s. And, um, you know, montages that are that are action montages that could be out of The Sting or, or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or something like that. It has a little bit of that playfulness of a heist movie or a crime thriller from the, the 60s or 70s. Mm. Uh, Julia, what's your history with this movie? 
I adored this movie when I first saw it when it came out, or maybe a year after. I think I saw it on video, not in the theater. Um, and I loved it so much. I think I like watched it multiple times when I rented it and remember feeling like it was just so cool and fun and light in its touch. And I remember actually loving the score. Like I bought the score, which I never I never did before or since, except for I guess I bought Nick Patel's score for Beale Street um, out of out of loyalty and uh, desire to hear it because I liked it. But it's really the only time I've ever watched a movie and thought I want this music. I think in part because I just wanted the mood of the movie to persist in my own life and my own life to feel as adroit as George Clooney is when he's handling situations large and small. Um, I had a funny, I have not watched it since, so it's been 20 years since I've seen it. And I had a funny response to it that, that evolved over the watch. And I'm curious for your guys' feedback on it, which is that it almost feels like a, a, a meringue. Like there's sort of, there's so much there. Every small part is played by someone who has had a major career since then. There's a tiny, tiny part where you're like, oh my God, that's Viola Davis. Uh, and, you know, just just every role is a heavyweight. Um, Steve Zahn is, of course, amazing as, and scene-stealingly so, as he always is. Um, Catherine Keener has a great role. Louise Guzman. I mean, there's just great, great actors everywhere in this movie. But it's such a tone piece. It's such a mood piece. Like, initially I felt, and, and, it's, and it's so based on this kind of old-fashioned just pure improbable attraction and the idea that a woman stuffed in a trunk with a, a like disgustingly dirty man who's just crawled through a tunnel and is like possessively putting his hand on your thigh um, would, would actually be a great romance that I had like a, for the first half of the movie, I was like, maybe this meringue has collapsed and doesn't quite work anymore in this moment in culture. And then I watched the final third and was like, nah, this is great. This is still really yeah. fun. So uh, I, I'm curious if you guys had any of that sense of like, whoa, does this still land with the power that it did when I first saw it? I, Julia, I thought Song Candy, that's almost exactly the same experience I had. So I should say that this is a movie that I adored when it came out, uh, as you did. I've returned to it over and over and over again without ever rewatching it. So I think about the movie. I remember it fondly, unlike my other comfort movies, which I would say Get Shorty would be one of them. Um, I've watched Get Shorty probably once every couple of years uh, since it came out. Uh, I just never really, I, I, I lived off of the memory of it, right? Without really without really going back to re-experience it. And I would say some of the gender and racial politics have not aged exquisitely they're not total howlers they're not you know there's i don't think there's a reason to cancel this movie i i i sincerely don't think there is but there are a couple things that in a movie today you wouldn't get away with and shouldn't get away with so there's definitely that um but what i realize is that is is in rewatching it there's first of all there's a very last gasp high Hollywood belief in the power of romance that I think the movie pulls off both the power of, of stardom movie stardom and romance that the movie pulls off that just to Hollywood doesn't even attempt anymore. I mean, the culture is not receptive to it and the stars aren't that big. They're not that sexy. Uh, heteronormativity is no longer that universally believed in uh, all kinds of reasons, but this was the last gasp of that. I mean, you are 
rooting so hard for these two people to be on screen with one another. Um, And the whole story is accordingly built around effectively a single romantic interlude. And it sets up the quandaries of the film, um, especially hers. Uh, And then, um, and that scene, Dana, you probably have read about this, you know, they essentially they meet together. Finally, uh, re-meet one another finally um, somewhat inside their respective identities as bank robber and federal marshal somewhat out of their identities they then through flirtation establish that they will tacitly more or less tacitly agree to shed those identities in order to be lovers and then there's a love scene and Soderbergh had shot these and was thinking about just having them be consecutive they flirt in the bar they come to their tacit agreement they go and they mess around and he was working with the editor of Lawrence of Arabia, this legendary woman whose name I don't know, Dana. Ann B. Coates. Ann yeah. B. Coates. She just died two years ago. And she intercut the two scenes. It's like one thing being in that bar and coming to this tacit agreement and being upstairs and consummating are shown to be one thing because they're intercut non chronologically with one another. I mean, because you were talking about the editing, I just have to talk about my experience of of watching this movie vis-a-vis editing, which is that I kept thinking and saying again to my viewing partner, it's completely the editing that makes this movie work. The editing is unbelievable. There's all these time frames that are being cut between a la Pulp Fiction, right? A fairly recent crime caper at that point that also chopped up time frames um, in a in a maybe more virtuosic way, but I think in a less subtle and effective way. There's two different stints in prison that the Clooney character serves, right? And we sort of have to differentiate between is he in yeah. his first time in prison or his second time in prison or is this in between somewhere? And the movie so effortlessly establishes that. There's that sex scene that you talk about which in which essentially the flirtation in a bar and the consummation in the hotel room kind of happen at the same time and it's exquisitely done. And while watching all those scenes, I kept thinking, wow, Soderbergh can really edit because I think of him is his own editor, which he is now, um, and he has been in recent years, but I didn't realize that he had only become his own editor in the second half of his career or so, and that he had worked with these other editors, great ones like Envy Coates at times. So I came out of it thinking, yay, Soderbergh, way to edit your own movie, and then saw mm-hmm. with a shock that you know it was this, this legendary... Hollywood golden age um, editor Envy Coates who had done it instead but on every level I think the movie has that kind of craft you know that score that you observed Julia is by David Holmes who wrote a whole bunch of Steven Soderbergh scores and you know just again perfectly captures that mood that's slightly out of time you know this doesn't feel like a throwback movie but it, it has an energy that calls on earlier eras of Hollywood and all of that stuff, including, you know, just a, casting a great, great actor in every single role, including some uncredited ones that we won't mention here, so we won't spoil them, um, just gives this movie this confidence and and bravado and just kind of pizzazz, you know, mm. that has lasted more than 20 years. Before we exit the segment, I think it's important to, you know, identify this movie as a kind of turning point in a bunch of different careers. So, 1989, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is Soderbergh's written and directed debut. It not only launches him as a 24-year-old wunderkind, um, it also totally remakes um, Sundance. I recently read the very good Peter Riskin book about independent film in the 90s. Without question, Sex, Lies, and Videotape turned Sundance into Sundance. Then he kind of has, he becomes extreme. Soderbergh becomes extremely ambitious as a filmmaker, as a young filmmaker with a lot on his mind and a lot to say. And it's kind of one admirable stumble after another. He makes Kafka, 
King of the Hill, The Underneath, Schizopolis, and Grey's Anatomy. So five movies that really don't live up to this debut. And, you know, you could kind of see him flaming out at that point. And then he delivers Out of Sight for Universal. It's a big hit, delightful movie. And immediately he goes Out of Sight, The Limey, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, and Ocean's Eleven. So it obviously set up Soderbergh as the as the filmmaker that we know today. It was the thing that got him out of this early reputation of I'm going to be an, you know, sort of arty, artsy, indie guy. And he brought his you know, really incredible filmmaking talents into in, more into the mainstream on and on. We know that story pretty well, but look at Clooney. I mean, you know, C- Clooney was sort of known as a Hollywood joke for a while. Then of course he was a big TV star, but not in an era when you made the jump from TV to film very easily, if at all. He makes a bunch of Hollywood movies. He's in Batman and Robin in 97, which is not one of the more memorable of the Batman movies. It's kind of caught between, caught between that big 89, you know, uh, Keaton Batman that rebooted the whole thing in the Dark Knight series. It's kind of forgotten. He makes a movie called The Peacemaker, which I think was an early attempt by DreamWorks to pretend they were a big, you know, to to show the world that they were going to be a big studio. That movie did nothing. Thin Red Line, I have no memory of. And then it's Out of Sight, you know? Out of Sight in 98, you you walked out of that movie theater, you have to be crazy not to think that George Clooney was a big movie star. And kind of from that moment on, he really was. I mean, people can write in and correct my history, but that that certainly was my memory of it and looking at the Wikipedia filmography, it's true. And then I think inarguably, do we agree, this is probably the greatest performance J-Lo ever gave. Is that a stretch? Well, I don't know. Are we comparing it to her extraordinary performance on the pole last year in Hustlers? That was a very memorable J-Lo moment. I also do not think we should besmirch uh, her significant contributions to Made in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and let's not go down the road of Jiggly. <laughs> all right, Q- QED. This is her greatest <laughs> okay. performance of all time. All right, the movie's out of sight. Uh, rewatch it and tell us what you thought of it. Uh, I think we all had a lot of fun uh, revisiting. All right. Can can I make my assignment for next time? Oh my gosh, yeah, please. Okay, so I a couple uh, weeks ago with my super cineast brother-in-law, I was talking about what my next options were be because we've basically gone through most of the movies that I've watched multiple times significantly in my life and then I was like, well, the only other one is Center Stage, the ballet movie, but I'm not sure I can really ask all of Culture Festlandia to rewatch Center Stage, the ballet movie. And then the next day on Vulture, this like massive oral history of Center Stage came out and the Center Stage stands came like crawling out of the woodwork and were, you know, all over the place and reclaiming it as like a really excellent dance movie in some fashion. And the alternate I was considering was Network, which mm. is maybe my the other movie I've rewatched most often. But um, I'm just going to dangle Network ahead for further in the pandemic because now that we've watched so many important film classics for the last two weeks, it's time to go back to a kind of twister level rewatchable 90s Drek. And, or maybe this is early odds Drek. And it's not even Drek. Center stage. You guys have to watch this ballet movie. It looks like it's a currently available to stream on Netflix, and you can also rent it on iTunes or Google Play or Vudu, or it's, there's a bunch of places you can find it. All right, excellent. I'm, I'm psyched. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I'm going to be Metcalfian and endorse two things. I feel like we've earned it by only being biweekly. I'm I'm accumulating too many interesting things to stick with just one. So one is a very short something that came up in our prep document. And thank you to Rachel, our production assistant, for finding this. There's a little interview with uh, Anvi Coates, the editor, legendary Hollywood editor who also edited Out of Sight, that specifically is about, Steve, that scene that you mentioned about her decision to intercut the, the foreplay with the actual consummation of the, the Clooney-Lopez love affair. And uh, it's just three minutes long. It's on YouTube. We can put a link to it on our show page. And it was made just a couple years before she died. So it's, you know, an, a much older Ann B. Coates reflecting back on how she made that edit decision. That's really fun. That's my small, light one. And my other one is, I was reading the other day that apparently people's listening during quarantine has changed their earbud habits and that they're not listening to as many podcasts, although hopefully still ours, and are listening to more music to accompany the endless chores as they go through their house. I just wanted to point out that for me, there is nothing like a big, juicy 19th century novel to while the time away as you're doing things like, you know, scraping COVID off of your grout. <laughs> so the one that I've been listening to since actually before the quarantine, because it's a dang long book. It's something like 900 pages if you were to read the original book. And I believe the audiobook that I listened to was 21 hours long is Villette by Charlotte Bronte, which is Charlotte Whoa. Bronte's last novel. Have no. either of you read Villette in any no, circumstance? No, never read Villette. No, no. I have always wanted to read Villette. I, I mean... Am- Yes. If you're a, if you're a Charlotte Bronte person, if you're a Jane Eyre person, if you're somebody who just finds that particular the way that she can handle, I would say sort of uh, omniscient first person narrators, right? I mean, first person narrators, but that seem to incorporate all kinds of things that they couldn't possibly know. I mean, that thing that Jane Eyre does, like Jane Eyre to me is a book that the minute you pick it up, you are going to finish it. You know, it's like the movie that comes on cable and you can't stop watching. Jane Eyre is that for books. Villette is a little different in that it's much longer. It incorporates many more characters. It's more of an epic, but in a way, it's also much deeper. It's written by an older Charlotte Bronte and one had been, who had been through an incredible few years of her life. I mean, if you even rudimentarily know her story, you know that she lost all of her family, her brother and her two sisters. And, you know, the four of them had, had been very close and created this kind of uh, almost like a writing unit. You know, the four of them, they grew up writing stories together. They sort of developed as the girls as writers and Branwell, their brother as an artist together. And Losing them must have just been such an incredibly huge blow to her. And her father also she lost in a very short period of years. So after going through all of this, Charlotte Bronte goes back to her earlier youth. She's still a young woman and remembers this year that she and her sister spent in Brussels teaching at a pensionnat, right, at a young lady's school. This is something that they actually lived through and that she had this unconsummated romance with the teacher at the school. And in a sort of masked way, she's telling that story in 
Villette. And all I can say is that, I mean, there is no soap opera that has anything on a well-told Charlotte Bronte novel. I happen to listen to this as an audiobook because somehow 19th century literature just really works for me that way. It has that episodic quality, the almost soap opera element that you can't stop listening. So if you listen to the audiobook, and I in particular recommend the one that's narrated by Charlotte Ritchie, who was an actress in Call the Midwife. I'm sure there are other good versions of it as well. But if you listen to it or read it, please get in touch with me about it so that we can just drop our jaws to the ground about the ending and, and what exactly it means. So Villette by Charlotte Bronte and the interview with Anne V. Coates on YouTube. Those are my endorsements. Wow. Oh, that was great. I, I've always wanted to read that book and now I'm definitely going to do it. Magnificent. Um, Julia, what do you have? All right. Well, my endorsement was going to be the Miracle Sudoku video uh, in which you watch for 25 minutes, a man try to solve a Sudoku grid that has an elaborate set of rules. And when he uh, opens the puzzle, only two numbers populated in the entire grid. But we are discussing that Sudoku and going to force Dana to do a Sudoku in our Slate Plus segment today. So now is a great time to join Slate Plus, And I would encourage you to come listen to Dana's um, no doubt delighted domination of the Sudoku format. My actual endorsement, though... Um, for your quarantine cookery book is Wiley Dufresne's Scrambled Egg and Cheese Sandwich, um, which is a recipe that's available to you on Bon Appetit, and we will share the link. Um, a few points. Wiley Dufresne is like a, a kind of American molecular gastronomist. He's he's a practitioner of a type of cooking that I don't honestly don't really even love to eat in restaurants and don't particularly enjoy making in my home. I'm not a molecular gastronomy type. Um and also, this is a, it's essentially a grilled cheese with scrambled eggs on it. Um, but in describing how to make it, he suggests whisking your eggs constantly as you cook them on a high heat so that they make a very small, tight curd, which I'm a big fan of slowly stirred large curd scrambled eggs. So the sandwich goes against many of my food proclivities. But if you're kind of missing that like soft, gooey egg and cheese dinery, type confection that is maybe more easy to find if you're frequenting diners or bodegas um, in the world. You can recreate some of that feeling at home by following this recipe, which after you make this small curd scramble, you stir in um, cream cheese so that it takes on kind of like a stiff, solid quality that's almost more like egg salad than scrambled eggs. Then you make just kind of a classic grilled cheese, white bread, American cheese, put this egg goo on top another slice of bread and kind of flip that like a normal grilled cheese on a, on a hot frying pan. Um, and it is so good. A little bit of cayenne in the eggs. It is like a miracle sandwich. So get yourself some good American processed cheese product and some white bread and make this sandwich. Wow. That sounds good. Oh my Lord. Mouthwatering. Okay. So for my endorsement this week, a couple different things. Um, one of the facile theories that I've pushed on this show over the years is this notion of creative dyads, people who who you almost can't think of one without also thinking of the other. They somehow represent a dynamic tension. So Lennon and McCartney being obviously a famous one or Mozart and Beethoven, you know, Mozart, you know, 
endlessly virtuosic music poured out of them. It has a kind of sprightly, incredible inventiveness, whereas Beethoven was deep, dark, depressed. The music came very difficult, you know, only with great difficulty from the bottom of his soul. Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, uh, you know, maybe Hemingway and Fitzgerald. There are a bunch of them. You sort of say one and the other is going to occur to you. I would say the great post-war painting dyad would be um, certainly for uh, abstract expressionism would have been Pollock and de Kooning. I am, and then you tend to be one or the other, right? Are you a Tolstoy or a Dostoevsky as a person and as a, in your tastes? I am so partial to de Kooning as a, as a painter, this late bloomer who is still trying to do figural things with very gestural uh, paint strokes, on and on and on. Love de Kooning. There's this article in Tablet magazine about a stolen de Kooning. So right away, you've got this great mystery. It was stolen, I believe, from an Arizona museum. The University of Arizona Museum of Art had uh, a painting called um, Woman Ochre. And one day back in the 1980s, uh, 1985, a couple walks in dressed so suspiciously. I mean, this is, the whole thing was done so brazenly. And one distracts the security guard, the other rushes upstairs and cuts the painting out of its frame, and it's been gone ever since. It reappeared a couple of years ago, and uh, this woman tracked down the entire backstory of the couple who almost certainly stole it. And I should mention the journalist is a woman named Emily, Emily Benedek, B-E-N-E-D-E-K. And uh, I was very taken with this piece of writing. I was so grateful for having read it. It's uh, payoffs are so earned. Um, and then the second thing I'd, I'd like to endorse really quickly is that Laura Marling, the wonderful singer-songwriter, English woman, has a new album out, sort of a folky folk rocker, whatever. These are incredibly limiting terms for someone whose talent is you know, quite quite something. But she did something. She did a couple, couple things. One is that she did a from-home NPR Tiny Desk concert doing a handful of songs her singing is so beautiful and so delicate. And I was showing it to my younger daughter who's taken up um, singing and guitar playing. And so we did a little bit of research and Laura Marling has done the most unexpected and generous thing. And I, I'm here to tell you as someone who's constantly trying to figure out how artists play songs uh, that I admire, I don't think anyone else has really done. She has made videos and posted them to her social media to completely demystify um, the chord structures of her own song. She says, yes, here's this kind of cr- crazy tuning or somewhat unexpected alternate tuning or open tuning, kind of a version of open A. And once you do that, here's how you can play these wonderfully, beautifully voiced, but complex, rich, re- really densely and richly voiced, somewhat unexpected chords. Um, I thought that that was just a gesture of such just remarkable openness in general, just to open source a significant part of your own creative process in that way as a songwriter is, I think is very unusual. Anyway, so those are my endorsements. Um, Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. As always, Steve, it's a pleasure. Find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. Please, we love it, especially given lockdown, extended lockdown. We do love it when we hear from you. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Engage us on Twitter. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, thank you so much for joining us. Please stay safe, stay well, and we will see you soon.